Patricia Angle is the award-winning author of The Veins of the Ocean, Vida, and It's Not Love, It's Just Paris. Her new novel is Infinite Country, hailed by the likes of Edwidge Stantecott, Edward P. Jones, and Roxane Gay. Infinite Country is a New York Times bestseller, a Reese's Book Club selection, an Indie Next pick, and much more. In the words of Lauren Groff, Infinite Country knocked me out with its elegant and lucid deconstruction of yearning, family, belonging, and sacrifice. This is a book that speaks into the present moment with an oracle's devastating coolness and clarity. Patricia, who makes Miami her home and teaches in the MFA program at the University of Miami, is my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. But I want to start off just by, you know, just by saying, how are you? It's um, doing well. Um, yesterday was the first day back on campus for classes and we're in person and it's hard to believe it's been almost two years since uh, we've been in the classroom. <laughs> were you so, teaching virtually before this? Yeah, all over Zoom. So um, it's just, it's meeting students I've only known virtually in person for the first time. And uh, it's, uh, so it's, 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 it's wonderful to see them in person, but of course it's different. We're all wearing masks. We're all being very careful. We have certain limitations. Talk a little bit about the MFA program at University of Miami. Yeah, so it's under the direction right now of Chantal Acevedo, a wonderful fiction writer, and before that was under the direction of Evelina Galang. And it's really known for being, um, I believe, one of the only MFA programs that have a multilingual focus, um, where multilingualism is prioritized uh, um, as part of the curriculum, part of um, what we read in the classroom and how we teach. So it's a very small program, very personal, and um, and it's really just a joy to teach there. Talk about the students then. So when, when you mention multilingual, is it primarily Spanish? Is it other languages as well? Well, even multilingualism is has very wide interpretation, and we, we don't even restrict that to language, but it's also open to ideas about how we um, perceive language and how we experience language in terms of dialects or different registers or code switching. So it's really up to each writer to interpret for themselves. But it does have an international focus and, um, and we explore the possibilities, um, the borderlessness of language. So the students come to it for all different reasons, from all different backgrounds and, and really just because they like that open terrain of being able to experiment with language um, in a way that um, some other programs are, are not yet doing. I love that notion of the borderlessness of language, mm -hmm. which pulls us into your book as well. Infinite Country, which is uh, Patricia's newest novel that was published to such acclaim just a few months ago. And it's been kind of a wild ride for you, hasn't it? Yes, it has been. This is my first book launched in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> so, so that was new. But I think being, um, you know, um, confined to the virtual stage for a book tour also allowed me to reach a lot of people in different ways and, and connect them in the way that, you know, technology is able to do. The book made such a mark when it came out, even in the middle of a pandemic. You know, Jonathan Karp, you know, called it an instant classic. Did it make you nervous when all of that was happening? 
Well, it's, uh, you know, it's, there's so much that's out of your control when you publish a book. When, when you're writing a book, you get to be the boss of every word that goes on the page, and then you release it at a certain point to your editor, who then has a say or can contribute as well. Um, but then, then really, the rest is, you know, is out of your hands. So I was um, really lucky that my first editor, Lauren Ween, who's now um, at Avid Reader Press, acquired the book, and we have such a wonderful relationship that goes way, way, way back. And and I felt she really understood the book. And I think um, so much of the the journey of the book and and the good things that have happened have been born from that love that Lauren had for it. Um, and how she was able to share it with people at um, Simon & Schuster, at Avid, including with Jonathan Karp. And, um, and people started to connect with it. And, and that's all you know, a writer really wants for their, for their work, I think. There are so many wonderful books that are published each year that, that sometimes you don't even get to see all the wonderful books that are out there. And the books that maybe would have been the book that you need you know, most, you might not even know about it just because there's, there are so many books. So I'm just um, really grateful that they were able to share it with so many people and that it could reach a a wider audience. And I was just very happy for you because you happen to be one of the most generous writers that I know here in (laughs) Miami. And you're always generous with so many other writers. And, you know, to see such a deserving book get its due is, is not is something that I don't see all the time. And it's often very frustrating, just as you said, when there are so many wonderful books that are out that get looked over and passed over. And for this to, uh, to not have that fate, you know, made me feel really, really good. Uh, tell me what the origins of this story was for you. Where did it come from? Well, I come from a very large family, so there were a lot of people around with a, and a lot of stuff happening. And I was, you know, if not the youngest on the younger end. So I was observer a lot of the time. But I also come from a family of very artistic people, a lot of uh, painters and uh, classical musicians. And really in my family, something I'm very grateful for is that it was normal that everybody had a creative outlet. There were no... Um, everyone had a day job, you know, I, there were nobody was able to do what, you know, their art was professionally most of the time, but everybody had something. And so when I was very little, I thought that I would be a painter, but, um, you know, as I learned to write, I started writing uh, little stories and they just grew and grew. So writing very quickly took over. Um, But also because my family is a family in diaspora, very typical when you're, family has made this enormous journey and it's in in the very recent past. Um, It's not generations and generations ago. It's a story that's very often repeated. You know, it's your own family lore, it's your own family legend. And also because in, in, in the process of immigration, very often the only thing immigrants take with them is their stories. You leave everything else behind. So I think immigrants are especially poised to become storytellers because of that. It's kind of a survival mechanism just to remember who you were, remember what we left, remember what was, because here in this new place, like there's nothing to tell you who you are or remind you like the kind of person you are because everything is new and nobody knows you. You're just a total stranger. So there was a lot of storytelling just in the 
for purposes of remembrance, you know, from my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and my own parents of what life was like. So we would know, otherwise we would never know and those stories would just disappear. Um, so that's probably where the practice of storytelling came in for me. But then of course I had a natural kind of um, instinct that I needed to write and write. And um, my parents were just very good about like, oh, writing is her thing. Here's paper and here's a pen and get, go do it. And um, they, they, you know, left me to it. They were never asking, you know, or demanding to read what I wrote or anything. They really just understood that was my thing. And I, I think that was great because it really um, allowed me to um, cultivate my private practice for writing. And I should say my grandmother was also a writer, but my grandmother was the mother of nine children. So she never published anything, but she wrote only for herself. And I think that was also a very important example for me because I learned, you know, that's what you do when you're a writer, you write for yourself, you know, that's, there's nobody patting you on the back for the years that it takes to write. You write, you know, out of love for the words on the page. And I learned that from my grandmother, um, who, who just did it, you know, for the pure joy of writing and keeping herself company. That's how I began. That's beautifully said. Now, did your grandmother stay in Colombia or did she emigrate well, she, as well? She came. She came. She immigrated late in life. She came to New Jersey, where my family ended up. And also my grandmother, um, you know, as you can imagine, in those days, phone calls were so expensive, you know, so really letter writing was her thing. And she would just, you know, write letters all day long. So all her people, her family, her friends for this. And she used to write letters to me and I lived 10 minutes away. <laughs> um, she was just like that. So I also picked up the, the letter writing, you know, um, habit from her as well. Well, and the, the, the mother, the grandmother in the book mm -hmm. is quite, quite wonderful as well in infinite country but you were born in new jersey right mm -hmm. that's where yeah. you were born but you were born into this incredible colombian milieu with mm -hmm. how many brothers and sisters did you have i only have one brother i have one brother but you know my, my father uh, was the eldest of nine so you have a million cousins right yeah and my mom is um is the middle of five <laughs> so yeah we were wow. and <laughs> and you still have family in colombia Yes, all my mother's family is still there, and um, a lot of my father's family is still there as well. So you're going back and forth quite a bit. Yeah, uh, before COVID, yes. <laughs> well, and you talk about the land. Talk about, mm. talk about the land and, and mythology and all of that, and how that all came into play for you. Well, you know, my mother is from Bogota, which is a mountain city, and my father's from Medellin, which is, you know, subtropical, both on the equator, but very different climates. And the climates create very different temperaments and like the people of those cities. So most of Infinite Country is set in Bogota, which is my mom's hometown. And, um, you know, the weather is kind of cold and dreary and stuff there. So when I grew up going there, I always felt like, oh, the weather is so depressing and stuff. But I did always pick up on my mom's nostalgia, like on a fall day, you know, in uh, up north, she'd say, oh, the weather today is just like Bogota, you know, and it would just like pull, pull something um, inside her. Um, and then 
my mom also, because, you know, for many generations, she was from there um, and she's the storyteller as well, um, taught us, you know, the stories of the land of Bogota, which was the territory of the Muiscas, who were one of the four advanced civilizations of the Americas. So I, I knew a lot of these stories from my childhood, um, like about Bochica and, and you know, the, the origin of mankind from the Lake Guatarita and stuff like that. But as I said before, my travels around Colombia in the years since, I learned a lot more about um, the stories of the whole country because Colombia is one of the most ecologically diverse countries in the world. It has everything, it has two oceans, it has desert, mountains, rainforest, savannas, valleys, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a whole world in that one country. And, um, and so I'm just fascinated by, by it. And also the story of immigration, of every immigrant is not just about, um, you know, what's on the surface of the experience of changing one country for another, but really what's in much deeper parts of ourselves, what we carry um, within us about the lands and the people that made us. So you've been living in Miami for quite some time. And we know that Miami has a lot of, lot of immigrant stories as well. How much did some of the other stories from other cultures come to play in your own conception of what you were writing? Well, something that's very unique about Miami is that when I moved here 17 years ago or so, something that really made an impression on me was it was the first time that I saw advertised a support group for the loss of homeland. So I lived in New York for many years before I moved here. I mean, I've, I've been around immigrants my entire life, um, but I never saw something like that, where it was like someone had made a space where people could go to grieve their homeland that they left. And I just thought that was so important. And that really spoke, uh, gave such honor to the experience, you know, of, of immigrating. And um, I think something like that settled in my mind in, in a way that um, affected how I came to view what was going to become the story of Infinite Country. But also um, I've written all my books here in Miami. <laughs> so Miami has been very good for me as a writer, um, especially with The Veins of the Ocean, which is a book that is very much about South Florida. And, um, and I think, it, could only have been written, you know, um, as a product of my life here. How do you make sense? You know, as someone, you know, it's really interesting because I sit here and my background is, I come from a family of immigrants as well. It may be a generation or two back, but, mm -hmm. you know, Jewish immigrants from Poland and from Russia and other places. And how do you make sense of the demonization of, of immigrants? You know, how, you know, where is that coming from? Well, I can't make sense of it. <laughs> That's for no, sure. Well, it doesn't make good but, sense. Yeah. But I think, you know, the, the, the logic or the trail of logic behind it is that that sort of narrative serves certain people because it doesn't make any sense. And it's just that it's, you know, the age old story. If you repeat things long enough, people start to believe it. It starts to sound true. It does make sense in a way, you know. But if you think about the natural world and how the natural world functions, um, 
it's a human instinct to move, to migrate. And the fact that humanity has erected these artificial borders on land that was here long before any of us, um, you know, is, is counterintuitive to the human um, animal's need for survival. And what just sort of perplexes me is how people will watch documentaries about animals migrating and how they just know where to go to find the resources and food so they don't die and to feed their young. Yet when humans do the same thing, they say, well, they should just stay where they are, right? As if they're, they're, that makes any sense at all. I mean, movement and migration is a natural and beautiful instinct. And that people have been somehow learned to look down on it or to demonize it is just really, it's a product of our time, certainly, but there's, but there's, there's no logic to it at all. Some of the most cosmopolitan cities in this country are extremely segregated, right? Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I think is special in Miami is you really have a sense of everybody touch, every community touching each other's um, lives, you know, almost daily or continuously. Most definitely. Patricia, also, I, I just thought I would throw this out there because I know you and you've had a very significant year. You've motherhood played into all of that as well during all of that. How is that? How has that changed your your points of view, your point of view on things as well? Well, I'm still learning. I guess I'm, I'm a beginner mom. <laughs> You know, um, so I, I look to the wisdom of my elders, you know, but but certainly it's it's seeing the world in, a, in an entirely new way. You know, just when you get to a point in life where you think you know a thing or two <laughs> and then you realize you don't. <laughs> it's so, pretty humbling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> I think it also makes you it allows you to forgive your own parents you know, because, you know, you realize you're making some of the very same mistakes mm -hmm. in one way or another. But, but, you know, I want to go back to this idea of, of, of migration. Yeah, I think um, you're, you're absolutely right. The climate is making people move just, uh, just, just like every other animal on this planet, right? And, and we're being impacted in new ways um, continuously. I have no answers for that, you know, and, and I, like you here in Florida, we're on, we're on the front lines of, of these changes and, and we don't even know what's going to, to affect us in, in the next year or two or five. Um, I think the best we can do is do our best, right? And try and try to live as compassionately and as, um, as honestly given our responsibility of citizens of this planet um, and, and hope that our, our children take better care of it than we did. And I, I love your, I love the way you, you, um, you juxtapose, um, you know, human migration with animal migration. And I, and I think what you're saying is absolutely true is that we, we do exist within this, within this, within this natural world. And we have to look at the natural world for a lot of our cues, I guess. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we don't see that a lot of the damage that we inflict on our, our own kind, uh, like exploitation and captivity is the same thing, you know, that we do to animals and vice versa. And 
And uh, there, there's a lot to look at, but going to your earlier point of, of you know, how we think about immigration, um, there's so much distraction. And so our gaze is always pointed elsewhere. And we really need to refocus our thinking and, and think about why do we think the things we do? Why do we believe the things we do? What have we been told and, and what's true and what's not? I also know, happen to know that you're a wonderful reader and I'm curious as to what you're reading now and who do you turn to? for you know for some kind of not necessarily answers but who do you turn to for inspiration comfort and just enjoying what they're writing well uh edwidge john scott who you already mentioned i think is is a true visionary and somebody that i always look to with just admiration and awe um i'm reading a couple of books right now that are that are in galleys that are coming out um later this year next year one is a memoir by in Ingrid Rojas Contreras, another Colombian writer, um, called "The Man Who Moved Clouds," about her father, who was a curandero, kind of like a, a you know a spiritual leader. And um, another one by a student of mine from the University of Miami MFA program called um, "All Day Is a Long Time" by David Sanchez, and that will be out mm. in January. That's yeah. really really terrific. Would you read a little something from? Yeah, from I'd be happy to. Book? I would love that. I'm just going to read from the opening. It was her idea to tie up the nun. The dormitory lights were cut every night at 10. Locked into their rooms, girls commanded to a cemetery silence before sleep, waking at dawn for morning prayers. The nuns believed silence a weapon, teaching the girls that only with it could they discover the depths of their interior without being servants to the temptations of this world. To be fair, the nuns were not all terrible. Some Thalia liked very much. She even admired how they managed to turn the condemned penitentiary population into mostly orderly damitas. It was a state facility, a prison school for youth offenders, not a convent and no longer a parochial school. The lay staff reminded the sisters to aim for secularity, but on those missioned mountains, the nuns ran things as they pleased. During the day, under the nuns' watch, the girls practiced their downcast gazes. They attended classes, therapy sessions, meditation groups, completed chores uniformed in gray sweats, hair pulled back, forbidden from gossip and touching, but they did both when out of sight. At night, in the blackness of their dormitory, they gathered to whisper in shards of windowpane moonlight. When the nuns patrolled the hall outside their room, they became masterful mutes, reading lips, inventing their own sign language, moving quiet as cats, creeping like thieves. They listened for the nuns' footsteps on the level below, sensing vibrations on the wooden floor planks, the search for rule breakers, disruptors their guardians would schedule for punishment at daybreak. The night of the escape, the girls made purposeful noise so the nun on duty would come tell them to be quiet. Sister Susana was on the night shift. There were many latecomer nuns at the facility left over from some other failed life. The rumor was, was Sister Susanna was married until her husband divorced her because she couldn't have children. The plan originated with Dahlia, or maybe her father deserved the credit. That afternoon, she was given rare permission to phone in from the administrative office. Family contact was restricted, so the staff believed they could be a girl's worst influence. Talia hoped to hear Mauro say he found a way to free her, have her sentence lifted, paid a fine or convinced one of the rich residents of the apartment building where he worked as a janitor to call in a favor on her behalf. One never knows who might be listening, especially in a quasi-jail for minors, some of whom were murderers on the verge. Talia and Mauro were careful about their words. 
He tried everything, he said. There was nothing more he could do. She understood. Liberating herself from the prison and the country would be up to her. With the help of another girl, she spent an hour ripping bed sheets, twisting them tight as wire, thin as rope. She counted to 1,000 in the darkness, then gave the signal for the other girls to start shouting, fire, fire, fire. Sister Susana appeared in the doorway. Talia waited to catch her from behind with a pillowcase over the head. They'd cut breathing holes because they weren't trying to kill anyone, only to paralyze with fright. Talia held the nun while the others tied her to a chair with the shredded sheets, her breath hot on Talia's hands as another girl shoved a sock between her teeth to gag screams. So I'll stop there. <laughs> and then the wild ride begins, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have to tell you as a bookseller, what you, you gave me the easiest way to sell this book. All I had to do is read to people who came in and they were looking for something good to read. I'd pull out your book and I would go, okay, here's the first sentence. <laughs> it was her idea to tie up the nun. In every case, that sold the book. <laughs> it's one of the great first lines of a book that I've come across. It was her idea to tie up the nun. I love that. Patricia Engel, the book is Infinite Country. Um, it's on everybody's lips. And if you haven't read it, you should. And I hope you will. And I can't thank you enough for being on The Literary Life today. Thank you so much, Mitchell. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>